Um, if you want to turn to where we're headed in Scripture this morning, you can open up in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. And we'll be getting there in, in a few minutes. But we're, we're thinking uh, through how, how to cultivate a sense of, of prayer in all of our life. Um, and last week we talked about beginning just to pray as we can. Beginning to let prayer show up in the, the everyday rhythms and routines of our life. Um, and, and to take hold of that invitation. Um, to, to pray in simple ways, in accessible ways. To meet with God. This morning we're going to be working our way into chapter 2 of the book, which really focuses on, on being still, on, on being in God's presence, and the slowing down that's required to make that happen. Not long after Katie and I were married, um, many years ago now, you can see some pictures of a younger Dave and Katie up here. One uh, weekend at the end of September, right around this time of year, we were, we were living overseas in China. We were teaching. We had all kinds of, of activity as teachers. But I managed to plan a surprise getaway weekend for just the two of us. I booked uh, some flights and a nice hotel in the city of Hangzhou. And that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but in China, that's kind of like the honeymoon capital of, of their culture. There's this beautiful lake there. There are all kinds of great places to eat. And so I, I managed to pull off this surprise. We drove to the airport. We flew to Hangzhou. And from the moment we got off the airplane, I could, I could sense that Katie and I were moving at two different speeds going into this weekend. Right? I had been planning this. I had all these ambitious ideas of what we were going to do. We're, we're going to cycle up to the tea fields of Longjing and spend a day there. We're going to go to all these great restaurants in town. We're going to see all of the, the history and culture and sites around Taihu Lake, which was kind of um, a fixture in, in Chinese poetry and culture. I had this whole, whole list in my mind. But again, I, I could tell that um, Katie was going along with the pace that we, we had uh, out of the gate, but that, that we're running into some moments of tension. Right? I, was, I was ready to sprint, or maybe she was ready for a stroll. And so the, the first day or so of this action-packed itinerary unfolded until I think it was partway through day two of that weekend that I penciled in a relaxing 10-mile run around the lake. <laughs> I was doing some half-marathon training. I was like, we'll just see the sights and we'll run and we'll you know, cram all this stuff into our Saturday. And I don't remember how far we got into the run, maybe a mile or two, when Katie looked at me and she informed me she was done running. <laughs> and being the mature individual that I was, I said, great, why don't you take a taxi back to the hotel and I'll finish the run, meet you there. Right? You can see, um, yeah, hopefully we've grown. Maybe I've grown since then. I don't know. By the time I got back to the hotel from my run, it was apparent to me that if I didn't find a way to slow myself down, right, I was going to be in danger of missing Katie entirely that weekend. Right? I was going to miss being with her, which was the whole point of getting away in the first place. Well, we, got, we got back from that trip, and I think it was a handful of days into our next school week that Katie called me into the bedroom, and she showed me a, a reason why Another reason why we needed to slow down that weekend. 
she showed me a positive pregnancy test, right? And maybe that had something to do with not wanting to run 10 miles while doing everything else. And our, our lives, about nine months, or a little less than nine months at that point forward, would change again, and the rhythms and routines would change when Josie arrived in our lives. In the, the 15 years since that weekend away, I think I've been learning and, and relearning and relearning the idea that, that healthy relationships, healthy connections have a speed limit. It's really hard to be on the run and moving fast through life and also emotionally present to people we care about. It's hard to do those things simultaneously. And so for me to be the husband or the father or the friend or just the human being that I desire to be, I have to live at a different pace than the one I, I so often find myself running at. In the second chapter of the, the book, Praying Like Monks, there's a great quote from the philosopher and, and theologian Dallas Willard, who I think has you know, some of the most wisdom to share with us of, of any teacher in the past 30 or 40 years in American Christendom. And he was once asked by someone, what is it that you need to be spiritually healthy? Right? How is it that you pursue, pursue spiritual growth and maturity? And his answer in this conference was that you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The idea being that, that spiritual health, spiritual connection can't be rushed. It takes, takes time. On another occasion, he, he said out of all the adjectives he could use to describe the person and presence of Jesus, he would probably choose the word relaxed. How many of us Imagine Jesus as a relaxed person. Not someone who's demanding things from us, but a person who wants to come alongside us. Right? Dallas Willard kind of highlights this idea that our connection, our relationship with God also has a built-in speed limit. Makes me think of, of uh, dogs you see in your neighborhood right, being walked at the end of a leash. Some dogs know how to enjoy that time of, of leisure with their, their companion, their owner. But other dogs are always right at the end of their leash, straining, right, to get forward, to get there faster, to go in a different direction. And if you've been one of those dog walkers or if you've watched that happen in your neighborhood, you know it's, it's not a very pleasant experience for either party, right? It's a struggle. What if I'm more often the dog at the end of that leash, right? Straining to go forward, to go faster. Straining with, with my own sense of hurry or my own fear of missing out on something. But the result is that I, I not only miss maybe where Jesus' presence is in my life, where he might be leading me or guiding me, but more importantly, I, I miss the gift of his company. Right, the invitation he's extended to actually walk alongside me, walk with me through this life. There, there's another great quote from a Japanese theologian from, from the last century. His name was Kosuke Koyama. And he talks about 
being in relationship with a three-mile-an-hour God. He says, the God that we worship, the God of the incarnation, operates, he only moves at three miles an hour, which is the, the right speed for walking beside someone along a path, along a road. And Koyama says, our God walks slowly because our God is love, and love has its own speed. Love has its own way of being with. Today I want us to, to think about not just praying as we can, which I think is a, is a first posture, a first step into prayer that we talked about last week, but how as we begin to turn our attention to God in prayer, how, how, how stillness, how slowing down, how bringing our pace into a different way of being with God enables that connection with him. So let me pray for us as we, we think about that stillness together. Lord, I don't know at what pace we've arrived at this moment this morning pace of our week, the pace of our month, the pace of this new day. But Lord, would you open up a space for us to hear you and sense you in stillness. Lord, with the words of my mouth as I preach, with the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Think about what this idea of, of stillness or slowing down in prayer looks like. I want to take us to the life of the prophet Elijah. Last week, last week we started out this series with the prophet Moses and his sort of pray as you can, here I am approach to prayer. I think if we take Elijah's story, which we find in 1 Kings, starting in chapter 17, and it goes through three or four chapters there. We take it as a whole. I think Elijah is someone who might be able to teach us about the need for stillness, the need for slowing down, because that was a lesson he, he had, had to learn sort of on the run, in process, the hard way. If you looked back at, at 1 Kings 17, which is where Elijah's story starts, Elijah appears when uh, King Ahab has become the, the, the leader, the ruler over Israel. And Ahab is leading Israel away from the worship of Yahweh, away from the, the worship of the living God, and, and into the worship of an idol named Baal. And there's all kinds of stuff attached to that shift in their worship. But Elijah is called by God as a prophet to go and confront King Ahab to, to tell him and, and, and ask him to turn the people back to, to worship of Yahweh. And that until that happens, that, that drought will be falling over the land as a sign of judgment, as a sign of the, the spiritual drought taking place um, within, within the worship of God's people. And this, this begins this long and difficult relationship between Ahab and Elijah. There's a, there's a struggle there. The struggle continues for a number of years into 1 Kings 18, and it sort of culminates in this 
moment of, of contest between all of the prophets that King Ahab has raised up in the service of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh. And they, they gather, they meet together on Mount Carmel. And you probably know this story. And, and God answers Elijah's prayers that day in a dramatic fashion. Right? First, God consumes Elijah's sacrifice, which was doused with water. Right? He consumes it with fire as a sign of his presence. Then he enables Elijah and, and a number of the other people of Israel to rout and, and, um, and even to put to death many of the prophets of Baal that were leading the people in a different way. And then finally, God answers Elijah that day by sending rain back to Israel. Right? For the first time in three years, he looks out and there are these rain clouds rolling in from the sea and beginning to water the land. Now we might assume that that moment where God answered Elijah and, and delivered the people in a new way would have felt like vindication, would have felt like relief would have been a time of rejoicing. But if there was any celebration, it was short-lived, because we're told within the next 24 hours, word comes from Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, that, that a price has been put on Elijah's head, that she wants him dead by sundown the next day. And so at the start of 1 Kings 19, this, this prophet of God who's been praying and battling and contending and striving against Ahab for, for three plus years now. I think he, he looks into the future and all he can see is more conflict, more struggle. And it's more than he can take. And so as the storm clouds begin to roll into Israel, Elijah rolls out. The text at the end of 18 and the beginning of 19 says, Elijah starts running. Running as fast as he knows how. First, he runs from Carmel down into the Jezreel Valley, kind of back toward the, the political capital. When he gets there, though, he discovers that there's this death threat from Jezebel, and so he just keeps going south. And he runs from, from the Jezreel Valley all the way down to Beersheba is in the, the middle of the, the desert in southern Israel, the Negev. The text says Elijah ran essentially a distance of 100 miles without stopping. So I think that makes Elijah the original ultra-distance runner. Right? Kristen Kindred, Kerry Causey, you guys can take notes. There's a proof text for you. But for Elijah... He does all of this running, but when, when the running stops, when the adrenaline finally wears off, we're told at the beginning of 19 there that all that's left is this heap of fear and despair and exhaustion. I think Elijah, he's been running for a few days, but I think actually he's been running for a few years at this point. Right, with all of the difficulty he's been up against. He's been running too hard, too far, for too long. And so we're told he comes to this scrubby little tree in the middle of the desert. He sits down under its shade. 
And it says that the greatest praying prophet Israel had seen in generations only has one prayer left inside of him. He prays that God would take away his own life. He says, my soul's wrung dry. I don't want to do this anymore. I want us to see how God answers that prayer, beginning in verse 5. 1 Kings 19, verse 5 says, again, after Elijah utters this prayer for his life to end, he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled another 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. We're thinking about cultivating a life of prayer. I think it's important that we pay attention here to how God begins to answer or to meet Elijah in his prayer life here under the broom tree. The first act of response from God is to send an angel to Elijah. An angel who says very little but instead focuses on meeting Elijah's most basic, most primitive needs as an embodied human being. What does Elijah do? He sleeps, he eats, he drinks, he goes back to sleep. He gets up, he eats, he drinks, he goes back to sleep. Notice that the God doesn't do really any talking to Elijah here. He doesn't send Elijah any, any great spiritual insight or message just yet. I think what God does first is attend to the places of deficit. He attends to the places where Elijah is empty, where he has no capacity for relationship, for life, for joy. He has no energy God brings him back to this slow place of physical restoration. If you are, are coming to God in your prayer life, but you're coming from a season of exhaustion, if you're coming to God from a place of burnout, maybe you're coming to God with your own trauma. Prayer might actually look more like a season of rest, Times of, of sleep, times of God renewing and tending to your most basic human needs. Before there's lots of information, before there's lots of spiritual revelation. Maybe prayer is, is simply acknowledging our own limits 
our own deficits in God's presence. And just slowly allowing his goodness, his kindness, and his love to fill them up. And that takes time. If I'm honest, some of the best sleep, some of the best rest I've ever experienced have been in times of prayer. Sometimes we think praying means not falling asleep, means being vigilant, and sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's just knowing that you're in a safe place with the God who made you. Once Elijah's physical and kind of emotional batteries are recharging, I think it's also interesting to note that the angel then sends him on another journey. Actually, a longer journey, all the way down the Sinai Peninsula. You can help me jump ahead there. But on this journey, there is to be no running. You couldn't run through the Sinai Desert if you wanted to. You'd die. If we, if we break down the distance Elijah walks in the time in which it says he walked it, it breaks down to a few miles of slow walking per day, maybe three or four. Walking alone with God for 40 days under a desert sky. And I think this is intentional. Right? This, is, this is God's prompting and leading Elijah now. And he's slowing him down. I think he's bringing him to a place of solitude, slowness, so he can begin to know what he's about who he is, and what this relationship with God looks like going forward. One of the best ways I've found to renew my own connection with God is by taking walks. The longer, the slower, the better. Just on my own. And I'm sure most of us don't have 40 days very often to go walking. But you might be able to swing 40 minutes every so often. Right? in the woods, at a park, along the road, wherever it is. Right? The goal is not as much in where you're going as in who you're with as you go. Right? When you're by yourself in, in that solitude, there's maybe an increased awareness that you're not actually alone, that you walk in the presence of the God who made you and who knows you and who desires to speak with you. We're told at the end of this 40-day journey, eventually Elijah arrives at Mount Horeb. The text calls it the mountain of God. But if you dig back into the Old Testament, you'll know it just so happens to be a mountain where Moses encountered a burning bush. It just so happens to be the mountain on which Moses erected that tent of meeting we spoke about last week where he met with God face to face. Well, Elijah, when he arrives at Mount Horeb, he's gotten pretty good at this whole sleeping thing. So the first thing he does is he goes into a cave and he goes to sleep. But then we're told as he sleeps, the Lord himself speaks to him. Verse 9, second half of that verse says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah there. And said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they have rejected your covenant, 
They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, God. And now they are trying to kill me too. I think it's interesting to think about the past month and a half have essentially been days of silence for Elijah. Sleeping, walking, just being. Until finally, God and Elijah start to talk here. They start to get at what's really going on inside of him. And in verse, I lost my verse here, verse 9, God asks Elijah a question. Interestingly enough, Pete, a lot of commentators liken this question to Elijah to the question God asks Adam in the garden. Where are you? Here God asks Elijah, why are you here? And I don't think God needs to be clued in here. He doesn't need to be brought up to speed on Elijah's whereabouts. I think the question is actually more about helping Elijah locate himself. Why are you here? What's brought you here? What are you running from? Old Testament scholar, a former professor of mine, I am proven, calls Elijah's answer in verse 10 a mixture between exaggerated self-loathing and exaggerated self-importance. It's interesting. Those two things are bound up in in one verse here. Self-loathing and self-importance. And those are, are two things that if we find our own inner dialogue with God, you know, condemning ourselves, but also maybe thinking that what we do has this ultimate significance, maybe those are indicators that our, our life has become a life for God rather than a life with God. It's become more about what we're doing and less about how we're being in relationship. If I were to, to sort of paraphrase Elijah's statement here, I think he's, he's telling God, right? Haven't you noticed, God? Don't you know that I've worked night and day? I've been running around, running in circles for you and getting nowhere. Don't you see how Israel just continues to walk away from you? And don't you see that people are now trying to kill me? God, don't you know that I'm the only prophet you've got left? I think Elijah feels like he's in this, this trap that he can't get out of. And in trying to do great things for God, Elijah has run himself down and he's burnt himself out. And the, and the trauma of his recent past makes it hard for him both to see God accurately, but also to know himself clearly. But look at how God responds to Elijah's complaint. To where Elijah locates himself. The Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain. Stand in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Think in repeating that question a second time. It's God's way of saying, stop running and be here. Elijah, be here, stand in, be still in. Feel and sense my presence. What do you imagine being in the presence of God is like? Right? Is, it a, it is, is it a smashing whirlwind of power that can do anything it wants? Is God's presence in an earthquake that shakes everything around us? Is God's presence a fire that burns up and consumes anything in its presence? Well, in this instance, all three of those things come Elijah's way. They pass before the cave. But look at what the text says. It says, the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. The Hebrew here says, after all of this sound and fury and shaking, God's presence was in a silent voice. How do, you, how do you even hear a silent voice, right? It sort of begs the question. But somehow Elijah knows that in this, this still presence, in this absence of, of activity and noise passing in front of his cave, that God is, is present. God is showing himself, inviting Elijah into relationship with him. And in response, it says, Elijah pulls the cloak over his face out of reverence. And he goes to stand in silence with God. I think this, this marks the recovery of Elijah's prayer life. The recovery of a connection with the God he's been speaking for. If you read the, the rest of that encounter, you see eventually God has more to say to Elijah. Eventually, God sends him back into his prophetic work. But he sends him back knowing his presence. Knowing God isn't only in the big, flashy, powerful moments. Moments of fire on Mount Carmel. Moments of confrontation. God's presence is always with Elijah. He's never alone. God sends him back, reminding Elijah that he is a refuge for weary souls, too. As we move into this next week, and the second week in our study of prayer, 
I want to offer to you the practice of, of being still. Adding stillness to your daily routine. And that actually being a posture, being a way that we experience prayer. If you read the, the end of chapter 2, there's, there's some instructions, some ideas about what that could look like. You might start with just two or three minutes. Maybe you, you build up a little bit each day. The idea is, is to let prayer start simply as a way of coming to God and, and resting in his presence. The chapter talks about, about this being a practice of consenting to the presence, consenting to the work of God in your life. Not trying to tell God anything, not trying to ask God to do anything yet, just enjoying his still, silent love and presence to you. Recovering the appropriate speed of prayer. Recovering the speed for relationship and remembering you're not alone.